When I when I was growing up, some of my like most powerful memories when I was out on the land interacting with wildlife, bison are just built for this place, this geography that is North America. As far as we were rotating our bison, trying to regenerate the land through bison grazing, a lot of landscapes are not set up to be a year-round cow-calf herd, you know. This is Decentralized Radio. I'm Tristan. And I'm Ryan. The goal of this podcast is to help educate you on how to live your most optimal life. We will host industry expert guests to shed light on topics that matter. We are not gurus, rather two individuals who have had to pave their own path to health and vitality, independent of the centralized systems that plague modern society. All right, we are live on Decentralized Radio here in Wyoming at my lovely house with Cody Spencer. Cody, how's it going, man? Oh, man, doing great. First time in Thermopolis, beautiful place. Just crushed some burgers with you, and yeah, life is good. Yeah, we uh, glad we had this opportunity. You texted me. I was like on top of a mountain and you're like, oh, just let me know because I need to like, you know, decide to drive separate. So I'm glad this worked out so well. And uh, yeah, toured the Bison Ranch today, which was cool. So I have to talk a little bit about that. But why don't you introduce yourself to the audience as well? I think uh, you have a really cool background experience I'll have to get into. But what would you say that uh, you do for a living? So I'm Cody Spencer and I would say that I'm a Bison manager an agroecologist. So, I mean, to unpack what that means, uh, first and foremost, we manage bison and we manage them in a way that improves the health of the land and we producing a nutrient-dense food product from that and getting it into the hands of, of consumers. And so, I mean, that this I've been on this journey of bison management for about 10 years now and that's kind of taken me you know, down a few different roads, a bunch of different locations. Um, I'm from Alberta, Canada, so Southern Alberta. So for for your American listeners, if you're familiar with where Glacier Park is in Montana, we're just north of that uh, along the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. And so we're based out of there and I do work with uh, bison ranchers and cattle producers in the regenerative space, uh, primarily across the Western North American landscape to see how we can regenerate the land and, and bring back bison. Yeah. I think it's so cool what you do. And, um, that's obviously something I've gotten into like pretty recently, the pretty passionately the past few years. Um, bison for me is just like, they're just more magical, you know, native large ruminant North America. It's just something that captures, you know, a feeling in you that you can't really describe or achieve with cattle, I think personally. Um, but how did you, you know, how'd you get into bison? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so, well, so I'm 33 years old. Um, I grew up on a farm, a kind of a mixed farm near the Montana border. So I was always around agriculture and hunting as a kid. And so that really imprinted uh, in me and just living that kind of lifestyle out on the land. And when I was an early teenager, my, my family sold the farm for, you know, a bunch of different reasons. It was, you know, it was the right decision to make at the time. And we were, you know, we kind of moved an hour away outside of a medium sized city. And so we kind of 
became disconnected from the land for a few years. And when I was in my my late teens, I decided I wanted to get back into hunting because man, when I when I was growing up, some of my like most powerful memories when I was is when I was out on the land interacting with wildlife. And it was just this, this feeling I had. And so I, I was just kind of drawn back out onto the land. And so I started hunting and getting back out on, you know, where we live is the, is the Northern Great Plains, uh, where they meet the Rocky Mountains. And so, you know, we still have pockets of wild, wild landscapes, prairie grasslands, foothills, mountains, where we've got mule deer, elk, uh, moose, like pronghorn antelope, all these, megafauna species and as i was out there doing this you know bow hunting uh primarily was the was the thing that really hooked me because you have to get so intimate with the animal and so you know you have to be really in tune with your environment and so the more and more time i was spending out on those landscapes i just got thinking about bison and why why weren't they why aren't they still here you know that was the question that i started with and it's like, okay, well, I know they're not extinct, right? Because we see them from time to time and yeah, they're in Yellowstone and we've got some parks in Canada and, and, you know, I knew that like I had a neighbor when I was growing up that had a few. And so it was like, okay, well, this is interesting. And, and then one time my, my mom, I went over to visit my mom's house and she had this coffee table book called Portraits of the Bison and is written by a guy named Wes Olson. And, I picked up that book and started flipping through it and I was just blown away. I was, I was hooked right there. Like, wow, these animals are so amazing. And you know, you read into the backstory that everybody's heard about them being nearly exterminated. We almost lost them. There was a few hundred animals left on the entire continent, the entire world. And they've made this, this recovery. And basically right there, it was like, I need to figure out how to be involved with these animals. And that's what kind of, that's what kicked it off for me. Yeah, I think that's super powerful. It's it's such a cool story and I couldn't agree more. I mean, we were just talking about before hunting, um, something I just got into last year and yeah, I mean, like I'm hooked, right? Like I just want to be in it. I don't know how else to describe it. Like I just want to be connected, more connected with nature. And I think hunting gives you that experience um, excited so to, primal yeah i'm excited to bow hunt this year for the first time um because yeah you got to get even closer and get even more intimate and you know get in the rut with the elk um can't even wait for that kind of experience so i can totally see how that you know transition happened but yeah the bison i mean it's really like a shame that we kind of pretty much just like replaced all the bison with you know cattle and we don't even know, well, we know the effect that like industrial farming and overgrazing and feedlot animals has had on the soil quality in North America. But in general, it's just, you know, a mismatch from, you know, what their really biology is probably primed for. And um, I'm curious what you think in general, in terms of, you know, ranching bison, you know, it's kind of a weird thing, right? They're like, some people call them semi wild, right? Like they've only been domesticated for, you know, 100 years. Um, do you think it's something that's, you know, really great and that you'd love to see it continue to grow? Like, is it scalable, um, in terms of, you think it'll ever compete with cattle, um, and should it, or because I think 
the alarming figure that you know people don't really understand is what there's 200,000 maybe ranch bison, I think in the US or in Canada, maybe 300,000. And there's like 150,000 cattle that are slaughtered every day. So it's yeah. like, we're not even like, it's so small, it's incomprehensible. Yeah. So there's a million questions that you laid out there. And that's a, is a huge Sorry. subject. No, it's all good. This is my, this is probably my favorite topic. And um, so I, I would say that we look at, first off, I want to say that it is what it is. Cattle, you know, that all happened. Um, you know, the atrocities that were, you know, committed against indigenous people and replacing bison on the landscape with cattle. It's horrible, but it happened. And so here we are, you know, 150 years later, and there's a movement to bring bison back onto the landscape. And I think that is great. I think that's amazing. So then the question becomes, how do you do that? And really, when, once you start to dig down into that question, you got to identify, okay, so where, where is it suitable to actually bring bison back onto the landscape? And, you know, there's, there's a lot of studies that have been done in the grassland conservation world about where on the North American continent do we still have large blocks of unfragmented habitat? So, you know, and we look to the Great Plains, we look to, you know, largely across the, the North American West for these areas. And, you know, a lot of that landscape has been occupied by cattle ranching for the last 150 years. And for better or for worse, uh, cattle ranching in its traditional conventional sense is dying out. And the people who are adapting to it are generally practicing more regenerative type management and shifting their shifting their style of grazing management with their cattle to mimic the way that the bison used to graze. So when we look at how do we get bison back on the land, in most cases, we're dealing with a landscape that's been ranched, it's been fenced, and there's neighbors on the outside, there's highways, there's towns, there's cities, there's all these man-made things and, and barriers to bison and you know historically they would have moved thousands of miles in an, in a single season that's really what their instincts tell them to do they they need that they love that and so that poses a big challenge for managing bison in the modern context you know uh, back to these large landscapes there's really only a few places on the continent where it's still suitable for bison to range free roaming across you know political boundaries roads town cities Yellowstone's one of them. They still they still get persecuted when they try to go into Montana. That's not perfect. We've got some places in Alberta, a place called Wood Buffalo National Park. It's ten times the size of Yellowstone, and it's completely wild. And they you know they're totally free ranging, um, but that's in the boreal forest. It's not the Great Plains where we had these massive herds. So when we look at you know if we take a ranch, you know a big ranch that might be say anywhere from a thousand to some large ranches out there can still be several hundred thousand acres. These are still large landscapes, but they still have to be fenced to contain the bison because, you know, if you or I were investing our time and money into getting these animals back on the land, we don't want them to just run onto a highway and get killed and we get sued and all those things. And so we have to work within that context and um, each piece of land is different. 
So how we go about that rotating the animals through what land base we have is totally, totally context specific based on that piece of land. And to me, that is like a fascinating puzzle piece to try to like look at a piece of land and say, okay, how do we, how do we do this in a way that A, we regenerate the land, we improve the land. B, how do we, how do we respect the bison and their needs and their animal health and their performance? And if we're, we're in a ranching situation, then we need to be profitable as well. So we need our animals to be healthy and putting on weight. Eventually they're going to be, you know, feeding us. You know, I, I myself, I don't know what percentage of my diet would be grass fed bison that I raise, but it's probably up around 50% and it has been for years. So my body is literally made up of these proteins from this animal. So that's a critical piece that if we, you know, if we just say, oh yeah, the, you know, this needs to be a wild herd and no human can have an interaction with them. And it's just for display or something. I don't think that's right. And I think a lot of the indigenous populations who are reintroducing bison to their tribal lands, they would say the same thing, that that connection between the human and the animal and the land is critical. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, there's no way with the modern society that we can just like go back to having like, you know, bison range across states, you know, and it's, but it's important to know that that's what they did. Right. Cause like, what wasn't it called? Like a black cloud would just like come across the horizon and graze every, you know, piece of grass. And then they might not come back for years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's just not possible anymore. I mean, it's like a pipe dream. Right. And I I've talked about it with other people. It'd be like so sick to have like, you know, maybe from like Cody, Wyoming and come down like, and find somehow that there's like a route on like BLM land or like you get mm-hmm. a coalition of landowners that are on board. That would be awesome. Is that actually feasible? I don't know. Probably pretty challenging, but you know, having the native large ruminant on its native soils and land seems great to me. And although, you know, it's uh, probably a bit more challenging for ranchers, um, to me, I, I think it's for sure a great thing, like you're saying. So I guess the question is, what are the advantages of raising bison versus cattle? And what are the disadvantages? Like if mm. someone wanted to get into this or they're just, you know, you know, listening and curious, you know, what, what are the trade-offs? Totally. That's a great question because there are both of those things for sure. So starting with the advantages, I mean, bison are just built for this place, this geography that is North America, extreme colds, you know, temperatures down to minus 40 degrees. I'm Canadian. So Celsius and Fahrenheit, that's where they meet is minus 40 and bison don't even bat an eye at that temperature. They just, their metabolism slows right down. They kind of go into like this semi like hibernation state and just ride it out. They, they love it. Quite frankly, they love the cold. They thrive in it. And, you know, that's one thing with cattle. They're just not built for that. And, uh, a cold stretch of really frigid temperatures can just wipe out um, a cattle herd or, you know, at least put a lot of stress on them. They consume more feed and forage when they're in that state. Whereas bison, they don't, they just kind of 
their metabolism settles into that and they just they just ride it out. So that's huge, especially in the northern, you know, in the northern climates, uh, like where I live and, and even you get fairly cold here. Um, and then on the flip side of that, they tolerate heat really well, which is not something that people realize and it's kind of mind boggling, but um, people don't realize that bison are native all the way down into Chihuahua, Mexico. Um, so they, you know, they've existed in the deep South for a long time. Granted, they had migratory patterns where they could go up high into mountains during, you know, extreme heat and stuff like that. But their ability to tolerate heat is really, really high. I was just out at the Durham ranch near Gillette, Wyoming this past week doing some consulting work with them. And, and they were talking about how they, they held some sort of an infrared camera on the bison and it, it was extremely hot. I mean, it was like probably 90 degrees and you'd think that a big furry shaggy animal would just be dying and cooking to death. But something, I, I forget what the camera was, but basically the, the whole point was their hair was insulating from the heat as well. And so their actual internal body temperature was, it was just fine. It was normal and they were completely content and thriving. So I think the, their adaptability to extremes is, is one of the first things that really sets bison apart. Um, one major advantage over cattle, especially if you're raising breeding animals and they're calving, is that with bison, there's zero work involved with calving. On the cattle ranching side, most traditional ranchers are uh, out there pulling calves, trying to keep these things alive sometimes they're even calving in the middle of winter which is insane more and more more and more people are shifting away from that but there's still a lot of ranchers that calve in the middle of february even january and so you can imagine all the problems that are associated with that it's just insane so bison they are completely on a natural cycle where they they rut and breed and about starting about right now in the middle of july and then they have their calves starting maybe late April or, uh, and, and the bulk of it is in the month of May. And then you'll have a few come in, uh, into June. And another interesting thing about how bison calve is that in the springtime, like in the, especially on the Northern Plains, we can have these late spring storms that roll in and dump a bunch of snow on the ground and be, you know, kind of nasty, shitty weather. And bison will actually, they can sense that the storm is coming. And they will hold off calving and they will ride it out until that storm passes. And then, boom, the calves start coming. So they've just, you know, they're just so much more in tune. Um, you mentioned domestication. They really aren't domesticated. You know, that certain herds have, our, uh, you know, their behaviors more adapted to, to the humans that they're around on a day-to-day basis. But genetically, they're not, a, they're not domesticated yet. I think the more and more the ranching industry, bison ranching industry moves ahead. And especially if we're taking this cattle mindset of breed, nice selective traits and all of these things, then I think we'll get there, which I don't think is a good thing, which is why it's important to have wild herds. Yeah. I just want to chime in there. Cause like domestication, I guess that's a definition that I've never even really thought of, but to me, it's like these generations of generations of actually like you're kind of like picking traits like you're saying, but they're picking like docile animals, right? right? That are kind of like 
they're not the ones breaking out of the herd or they're not the ones like giving you trouble um which to me is like yeah you're you're basically eliminating some wildness and a gene that would allow them to thrive in nature yeah so so you're saying that's not a good thing and and that makes a lot of sense because i mean if you want to keep it true as like you know the bison are this badass animal that's you know actually wild they just happen to be on a ranch now if you keep making them more and more docile generation over generation like yeah you'll eventually end up with a domesticated animal yeah and that i don't know how we will reconcile that as uh as the bison ranching industry because um at anybody that's dealt with bison that are jumping fences and just generally causing you know a lot of havoc it's a pain in the ass to deal with and it causes a lot of stress and and financial issues so those animals generally get called out of the herd so i don't know uh, that's an interesting thing of uh, which is why it's important to maintain wild herds that generally don't have any of that selection pressure from humans so um you know ranching bison in that sense isn't perfect uh you know, we're not living in a fairy tale fantasy land. We're we're here in reality in 2023, trying to figure out how do we do this? How do we bring these animals back on the land? And um, and so I mean, back that kind of brings it to the, Down, the challenges. The yeah. yeah. So generally speaking, bison are. Hey, friend! Thanks for listening. If you really enjoy this podcast. It would be really appreciated if you left us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or subscribe to our content on YouTube. This helps us get to a larger reach and a larger audience to spread this wonderful free education. Um, they're very gentle creatures. A lot of people you know, have this perception from seeing people getting gored in Yellowstone Park like every Yellowstone, week. Highlight Rails, my favorite. Yeah, right? We see People see that and they're like, oh my God bison are crazy and they're super aggressive and they're all these things, which they're not in general. Um, it's when they're put in a stressful situation, their backs against the wall, they're defending a calf. They're, you know, old bison bulls are just grumpy assholes and they will, like if you go to engage with them, they know that they are bigger than you and they will, you know, they'll stand their ground, rightfully so. So, um, you know, with that being said, they are a very gentle creature, um, but they still, they're, they're extremely athletic. And if they're, if you have them in a ranched setting and by ranched, I guess I mean, um, fenced in contained, which can also mean, you know, all of the tribal herds that are being restored, uh, mo- I shouldn't say all, uh, we'll talk about this in a little bit, but most of them are still fenced, you know, even on tribal lands, most conservation herds, quote unquote, a lot of national park herds, they're all fenced. So, so then within that context, if we're not providing what they need, then they'll start to get agitated and want to find a way out of the fences. And so, you know, what do they need? Well, they need good quality forage, feed, grass, forbs, they're predominantly grazers. So they, they need a lot of good quality grass. And they need good water. Um, mineral is also important depending on the situation, but generally we want a good mineral program. Those three things and low stress. So just, you know, 
if if we're putting them in a situation where they're out of feed, they don't have good forage, they have poor quality water or not enough water, and we're stressing them and they don't have mineral, then they're going to start to get agitated. And that's when they start to put pressure on fences. And, you know, there's you always hear, oh, bison can jump a six foot fence from a standstill. And yeah, I get, you know, it's possible that they can do that. But generally speaking, they're not going to just go jump a six foot fence from a standstill. They'll, uh, cattle are no different. If they're put in that same situation, they're going to try to find a way out to meet their needs. So, um, you know, when it comes down to it, bison fencing does need to be a little bit bigger than cattle fencing. So, we generally approach a situation and, and look at a 54, 50 to 54 inch top wire, which is a little bit bigger than a cattle fence. That can be played with depending on the skill of the managers and how they're, you know, working that grass and water formula. So if you're if you have a really good manager and you know how to have a good relationship with your herd and keep them content then the fences, they don't need to be as high. But if you're a really poor manager and you're just letting them overgraze and and they're out of feed and they have really bad water, then you're probably going to need a Jurassic Park fence to keep them in or to be able to sleep at night. And it's anywhere in between. So, you know, those are some challenges. Um, You know, I think another challenge is that they're not um, this commodity that beef is as they should not be a commodity. But as far as managing them, it's not like if you need, if say you're in a drought situation, you know, and, and it's the middle of summer, it's not like there's an auction mart like down the block where you can just like unload your bison. So being able to, on, on say the, the marketing or the, the animal, managing where the animals go and managing for drought, that's a little bit more difficult as well. Yeah, I think the the infrastructure piece is is interesting, and I know we talked about you know that earlier today as well. And um, yeah, it seems like if you really have a great setup, you know, the chances of you know by some breaking fence or breaking out like could be really minimized, which makes sense to me. And you're talking about you know training them with the electric fencing too, and it's all kind of this you know mentality and and training them to respect boundaries and, and then being low stress. So yeah, I guess that's a nuance that people probably don't consider. And, you know, it's, uh, it's easy to think that, you know, a bison's just going to like break out no matter what, but maybe, yeah, the management style is, is, is really what's dictating that. So also probably the herd size, I guess, just from like a odds perspective would be probably something also that's important there. Um, but yeah, getting into that, I think, I think it's good that, that bison is a niche, but we've seen this, yeah, this like tremendous growth in the industry, what, like the past 10, 20 years, um, you know, how did that come about? And, you know, is that something, you know, like consumers are really like, it seems like consumers are excited, you know, bison is in supermarkets now and we can talk about, you know, maybe the downsides of the bison industry uh, that people probably don't know about, but yeah, like what, what really was like the moving force behind, you know, this, this growth of like bison ranching. Yeah. You know, I guess I, I would say that uh, bison ranching 
as far on the production side hasn't really grown that much. I think it's actually on the decline. Uh, but so I'm saying I'm saying that in the 90s there was this huge excitement about bison and a lot of people got into the industry and and it was like this big buzz and people were paying thousands of dollars for breeding stock like a lot of money for breeding stock and then there was no market to back it up there was no it was still like and you would still run into people today where it's like oh yeah bison's an exotic animal isn't it it's like well it's actually the least exotic animal ever and they would lump it in with ostrich and well, things still like is that considered exotic yeah like, it by is. the USDA right and it's just the most bizarre thing right um and so there, so that that kind of grew, and then there was a bubble because there was no market to back it up, and so then in the early two thousands, bison was bison industry was really not a good business to be in, and then starting maybe two thousand five, it started to pick up and up, um, and we eventually hit a peak of I guess a I don't know if you'd call it a bubble, but you hit a peak in the bison industry around twenty. Yeah, it was right right around the time that COVID hit. So the production, I don't think, has really increased that much. And there's, in fact, a lot of older producers who got in in like that first wave and kind of wrote it out. They're getting old and they're they're kind of turning over now. And um, but I think what you're maybe what you're referring to is this like consumer awareness and and the consumer's taste in bison. Because I think you're right. I think that's been growing steadily since then. And I think it really kind of started to build within the the early paleo movement. And, you know, people started looking for, you know, high quality protein, high quality red meats and bison is just so such a natural fit. Right. For, you know, if there's somebody who's really into improving their health, maybe don't have the resources or the skill to learn how to hunt themselves than like going out and sourcing bison is a, it's a perfect fit. Yeah. I think that, and I don't know. I mean, I think there's like a shit ton of more people just going to Yellowstone and yeah. like national parks. That and could be maybe just like awareness of what, I mean, if you ask someone in like 2002, what a bison was in New York city, would they actually know? I doubt it. Yeah. Now there's, you know, Yellowstone that's TV show. Like I feel like, with the internet, there's just more awareness maybe. And, you know, there's great documentaries. Right. I think that's culmination, but for sure. Um, I don't know which one of the big producers it is, but I think getting it in like the grocery stores really made it like a big movement. They're like, oh, like I can buy bison. And it is like, yeah. yeah, this like cool, wild thing. And yeah, I, I think people just have gravitated towards that. But I, I think you're right about the paleo community. I mean, grass fed. In meat, general, yeah. right, has just skyrocketed. Totally. Now it's almost like become a greenwashing thing. Yeah. You know, oh, cow ate grass. It's grass fed, you know, mm -hmm. but it spends, you know, 60% of its time in a, in a feedlot, which brings to me, you know, the next topic is that the bison industry, I will say this, you know, from a health perspective, when I was like getting into all this like four years ago, I don't know who said it, it was on a podcast somewhere. They're like, bison are like much more likely to be like 100% grass fed because it's like a more natural diet. I don't know. And this was like the connotation in the health space. And then, you know, in the last year, I've learned that this is absolutely not the case. And actually, predominantly, especially all the grass or bison in grocery stores, 
um, is very grain finished. Mm-hmm. So maybe maybe you could shed some light on on that or why that is. And yeah, well, I think so. Probably ninety percent of bison. I mean, that's that's probably fairly accurate. Are you know it could be a little less. But let's, it's a huge percentage of bison are actually finished in feedlots on grain. And so most people don't realize that. You know, we have this kind of idealistic image of them grazing on the pastures, which they should be. And that's, you know, that's where I stand on that. Um, but yeah, I think the, the bison industry in a lot of ways has adopted the cattle, uh, I guess, conventional cattle model. And there's reasons for that. So uh, they put on weight faster and cheaper in a feedlot when being fed grain, especially when it's coming from subsidized, you know, chemical input, uh, totally propped up by, you know, I'm sure you've dug into the industrial agriculture system, but, you know, there's a reason why those grains are so cheap is because they're so subsidized and with all this abundant energy and fossil fuel that we pour into it. And so then that, in turn, they're able to get a greater financial return on that. And, you know, in a way, it's misleading to, in a lot of ways, it's misleading to consumers because you never see a picture of a bison standing in a feedlot on their marketing material. You never do. (laughs) So, yeah, to me, it's like, and there's such a spectrum, too. That's where I get kind of upset because it's like all right if you like you know you know bison are so lean right so it's almost like i feel like they do this as well to yeah i mean even more so to just get some fat and some more marbling on the steaks because um, that's what the american consumer has been trained to eat yep. right and that's you know yeah even it. like a hundred percent grass-fed like beef steak like you know people look at that and they're like oh it doesn't look good you know it's not marbled enough and it's like you know intramuscular fat is it's not a sign of health people like right. wagyu beef is bullshit right. um but for the bison and beef too it's like yeah it gets finished on grain but it's like what is the spectrum like how how long because i was talking to people at the bison conference and you know the stat that i didn't know is that the majority of the meat sold in the bison industry is is from bulls I think two thirds, you can correct me there. But as someone also said that, you know, they're spending like over half or maybe half their time in a feedlot, which sounds insane. You know, that's a big difference from like what Stefan von Fleet was talking about, which is like three months or whatever it was, you know, three months versus, you know, two years. Like we're talking about really a big difference. And he was studying Ted Turner's operation and Ted Turner is the largest bison owner in the world and he's he's the largest grassland owner in the united states so he runs about fifty thousand bison uh, i say he ted's not out you know moving the bison but he's got a, a, an elaborate pretty incredible organization called turner ranches that manage 13 different bison ranches across about two million acres and and in a lot in order for them to build a consistent supply chain and that's another part of it is consistency throughout the year for these for our food system the way it's set up we want things on demand we want things supermarket consistent. we need it now so we it's need it now it's got to be the exact same whereas in a grass finishing model we're looking at the the changing of the seasons and we're looking at the forage quality the animals grazing on this rising plane of nutrition through the spring and the summer and then when fall hits 
the forage starts to decline in quality and that's when the animals get harvested because uh, that's the way nature works. But so in, in that scenario and Turner's operation to, they have a restaurant chain called Ted's Montana Grill. And, and so they, they, I think are doing what you're saying and doing a little bit less time in the feedlot itself. Um, and they're moving to a lot more of a grass fed program, rightfully so. Turner Enterprises pushing a lot of really positive things in, in the bison business. You know, they've got the resources to do it. And the people in that organization are solid and like have the right intentions. So yeah, it's, uh, it's a really interesting topic. And I think uh, what it comes down to is it costs a lot more money to a lot more time and money to finish that animal on grass. And you'd think, oh, well, why does it cost more money? Aren't they just eating grass? That grass costs money. That grass could be going to another animal that could be, you know, potentially higher in value. Some of those types of things. It just costs more money versus the propped up grain industrial system. So in order for, say, somebody like you or I to start a bison herd and graze these animals for uh, two, two and a half at a minimum to three years and potentially more to actually kind of truly grass finish them you know, that we we need to charge a lot of money for that meat. So it really comes down to, you know, are you able to, you know, it's great, you can produce a really good product, but then how do you get it into the hands of the consumer and tell that story so they're willing to pay you 16 or 17 bucks a pound for ground bison? And that's easier said than done. You know, it's so that's a challenge. That's That's a limit to scaling grass-fed bison. Yeah, I think we talked a little bit about that today, um, the nutrient density, because it's like, this is where I really get excited. It's like, yeah, you know, if you have these like four or five, six year old bulls, you know, they're probably packing on the phytochemical content compared to, you know, your average grass fed, even 100% grass fed beef cow is like two years, probably max. Um, industrial feedlot beef is probably 16 months. Um, I don't know the difference between like industrial style or feedlot bison. It's probably a little younger, but still like inherently we, we need to be able to, yeah, convince consumers that you actually are getting more nutrient density. And that's why, yeah, like what Stefan Bumfleet's doing is so cool. Yeah. But at the same time, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just interesting to think because to me, and we've talked about it on this podcast a lot and you mentioned subsidies food prices have been held so artificially low for so long like 199 a pound chicken are you are, <laughs> like are you serious yeah. that's not real that is a for facade real. yeah and you know why it costs that much because they're they're living in the absolute worst possible environments chock full of whatever just so they can make it to slaughter and they're you know in 40 days doing broilers or whatever it is now it's in, it's insane so i think the percentage that people spend on their of their budget on food has like dropped drastically in the past 100 years and um you know also they're just wasting money like going out to eat so you know i've sold bison at the farmers market and for sure you know i had to think about it cuz at first i was like you know 30 something dollars a pound for a steak like a ribeye or uh, new york and people are like holy shit, like who's going to pay that? But then I started pricing them in like six and eight ounce steaks and it's like, oh, 
you know, $15, $17 for a steak. Oh, that sounds reasonable. It's the same price per pound. Mm-hmm. But it's just because like, oh, if you go out to eat a bison steak, oh, you buy a bison steak in Jackson Hole where I was just <laughs> at. I mean, that's like $75. Even if you yeah. buy a ribeye, like a grain finished ribeye at Outback, it's like, what, 35, 40 bucks? Yeah. With tax, tip, and the whole nine <laughs> yards. I mean, it's just like, put it into perspective. And and I think this is what we need to do. And that's what we try and do here. It's like educate people that it is worth paying more for food. And there's a reason that it's priced that way. It's because that animal was four years old, not 16 months grain finished. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, there's, there's a totally an emerging field that Stefan Van Vliet is kind of at the forefront of, of testing nutrient density in these animals and relating it to the health of the soil. And so that's another huge part of what I do is, you know, as we're looking to regenerate landscapes, ultimately it's about the health of the soil and the health of the soil produces a healthy plant. And then that goes through the animal and into the human. And so, you know, just because an animal has been quote unquote, quote unquote, grass fed, doesn't necessarily mean that it's super nutrient dense, that it's all these things, because quite frankly, our every single farm and ranch in the world, unless people have been actively regenerating it over the last 30 years, is degraded. So our soils have been degraded, the nutrients are stripped away, to what degree varies completely depending on where you are in the past management. But I mean, we're talking billions of acres that have been completely stripped of their organic matter, which is carbon, the most important nutrient, all of the major macronutrients, micronutrients, and their water holding capacity. And then on top of that, we sprayed the shit out of them with all these chemicals and fertilizers and, and they're dead. So, you know, we, there's this continuum of, you know, how healthy is that animal if it's come off of pasture that was farmed and sprayed for 80 years and has been reseeded to grass that probably has been sprayed itself, you know, and we introduce animals to that, that could be considered grass fed, you know, versus a regenerative ranch on say native grasslands that's never had any sort of chemicals, uh, you know, abused to a much lesser degree. And the managers, the people that are out there on the ground are making decisions to improve the health of that land over time. And that just compounds on itself. And you end if once you restore the soil microbiology and balance the minerals and get carbon and get your water cycle functioning again, that's when we really start to see this nutrient density go through the plants and go up into the animal. Are you interested in 100% grass-fed, grass-finished bison meat? I'm excited to be a partner with Falls Family Ranches. Based in Wyoming, Falls Family Ranches is raising high-quality bison meat the way nature intended. As a native large ruminant of North America, bison is one of the most nutrient-dense foods you can consume. If you're interested in trying out their bison boxes, use code TRISTAN, T-R-I-S-T-A-N, 10, for 10% off your first order. The diversity as well of the plant species, right? Absolutely. Diversity is huge. Um we were just, uh, I say we, uh, a colleague of mine, Roland Cruz, who's uh, a regenerative agriculture consultant, 
who is focused on bison for many, many years. He and I, we just uh, were consulting on two ranches in Wyoming, both practicing regenerative ag. Uh, The one was a big bison ranch and the other was a a big cattle ranch. And these people are doing just an incredible job of, of, you know, taking agency and actively restoring that land to the best of their, their abilities. And they are, you know, choosing to approach this with an open mind and changing their practices, which is hard for people, you know, this is a multi-generation ranch. And the, what, what they've done over the last few years, they've increased the diversity of their plants. And just through the, some simple changes in, in resting certain pastures for an additional year, especially in these drier, arid regions, generally what we don't do is recover, let the pasture recover for a long enough period of time. A lot of these dry systems, like you mentioned earlier, the bison, they may have grazed it and didn't probably didn't come back for multiple years, maybe up to five years. And that's how these prairies were built. And so this family, we were up on the top of the Bighorn Mountains and they had rested this pasture for two years. And we were, you know, doing monitoring transects, sampling soil and, and looking at the plant communities, the amount of bare ground. And we're seeing just this incredible regeneration. We're seeing over 40 different species of plants in this extremely healthy soil and the animals grazing that. So the wild ruminants, the elk up there, their cattle, um, you know, the other wildlife species, they're going to be getting so much more from that versus the land, say, further out that's been farmed and, and, and really just stripped of its life. So it's, it's so amazing to see people take this into their own hands. And ultimately, they know that by improving the health of the soil, that's improving, improving the resiliency of their land and ultimately security for their family. Yeah, that's I love hearing stories like that. I think it's so empowering. And I mean, all this comes back to like, you know, it's like a positive feedback loop. And it's also logic, right? You know, if you treat the land the way nature intended, you emulate it, you know, you're gonna have higher quality soil. And that's going to give you higher quality forage, it's going to give you higher quality meat, you're gonna be able to charge a premium, you know, because it is more nutrient dense. And And then higher quality of life, ultimately, because that's what we all want, right? Exactly. It's a win-win for everyone, like the planet, you know, the consumer and the producer. So my question is, you know, what's your gauge on like the receptiveness to regenerative holistic management? Like it's become pretty popular. At least it seems like it. Yeah, it sure does. So yeah, the last five years, you know, there's documentaries, you know, Joel Salatin, Gabe Brown, if you're in the space, like household names, Alan Savory, um, I mean, uh, what Oak Pastures, um, Will Harris on Joe Rogan. It's, yep. it's become like much more prevalent in society, but I still feel a lot of producers are probably pretty apprehensive. So I'm, I'm curious, like on your gauge on how this trend is, is moving. Yeah, I think that, I think that you're right. I think the last five years, like I've, because I've, I've been immersed in this world, whether, you know, it's bison, regenerative and ranching in general for, well, especially on the regenerative side for about six years. And I can really sense that the last five, it's just building and building and building. Uh, whether or not we're at a tipping point, I don't think we're quite there. 
but ultimately, yeah, people are people who are involved in agriculture are looking for a better way because the the current system is not working. Um, a lot of people are desperate on the cropping side of things. Like if we kind of separate the the grazing, ranching, and the cropping farming side. Um, the farming side is, well, for one, especially in this country, is completely propped up by subsidies and farmers are trapped. They're in this degenerative loop where they are, you know, their land's degrading. They're having to apply more and more chemical every single year and all their equipment costs are just soaring. Everything's soaring out of control and they're, they're only able to make it because of the subsidies. If we strip those away, there would be a lot of tragedy, a lot of lost livelihoods and those types of things. Or the crop insurance, right? Like, yeah, that's, that's, yeah. yeah, that's part of the subsidies. Okay, yeah, yeah exactly. And so, um, but like they did it, they did that in New Zealand where they, you know, they pulled the rug out and said, hey, well, I don't know whether they couldn't afford the subsidies anymore or what, but it made, there was a lot of people that, you know, if they, they went down kicking and screaming but ultimately were forced to change their ways and become uh, inventive and entrepreneurial and and start to actually focus on regenerating the land. New Zealand's not perfect by any means, but that was a case of what happened when they removed those. Now, if you did that in America, I would beg to, I would say that, you know, we'd probably be forced to go back to more of an American spirit of entrepreneurism and actually figuring out how we can make this work and not relying on and just feeding the profits of big business, big agribusiness. Yeah. I don't think Monsanto is going to let that happen. Yeah, exactly. So, right. Um, you know, and you say that, but anything can happen. No, no, it's, it's the right attitude to have. I, I think there is a really tremendous momentum and I think it's because of people like you are out there with boots on the ground. We're trying to spread education. Like, it all makes a difference, right? Like even totally. if you convince one person yeah. right, and educate them on regenerative agriculture, holistic management, and the problems with their centralized system, you know, you're doing a great job. And that's like just going to continue because the way I see it is really like consu- ultimately consumers do dictate like market trends because they're the ones, you know, paying for yeah. the product. And, you know, there, there could be a bunch of producers, let's say tomorrow, 20% of producers, livestock producers in the United States switch to holistic management. You know, is there that many consumers who are willing to pay the premium? I don't know. Probably not right now, to be honest. Probably not. I mean, people are pinched. Uh, I don't know what. Especially inflation, you know. Absolutely. So, um, but, you know, I think that I think that it comes down, I really, I've thought about this a lot and, uh, you know, the work that you're doing to raise awareness and, and really connect to consumers, I think that's kind of the missing piece. Uh, we, we don't have as many of those people in this space. We've got a lot of people that are focused on the, you know, the land health side of things like I am and, you know, the people actually in just in their businesses like it's a it's more than a full-time job just to produce what you're producing right let alone to be you know that's why it's like i i totally am on board with the decentralization aspect of direct consumer and i've done that myself for 10 years but you can't you can't produce a high quality product regenerate your land and be at the farmer's market without getting burnt out 
you can do it, right? So that's that's part of the issue. We need more people like you in the space who are really diving deep into what's going on on the ground, understanding that piece, connecting that to consumers, and just building that up. Um, whether or not it can or will scale, I don't know. I think we just need to keep pushing. Um, back to the you know whether or not producers are catching on to it. I think it's easier on the grazing side of things because most people who are ranching, they're already kind of working within a somewhat ecological system, even if they're managing somewhat conventionally. It's easier to make some transitions on their pasture and just man- move their herds a bit differently and adopt a little bit of new technology, and you're off to the races. Ultimately, it's about the mindset change, though. Cropping, it's more difficult because, I mean, these systems are so degraded and to grow annual crops requires a lot more moving pieces and those landscapes are like methadone situations where they're they're addicted to those inputs and to transition takes a few years so that's between the two types of production agriculture i'd say it's it's easier on the ranching side yeah no i mean i i i can see that like for sure i mean cropping it said just seems like so much harder like across the board for very little you know margin um but yeah in general i think i think people need to think of it from a perspective as well like outside of meat that it's like like we need to get all these climate people on board it's like you want to fix the earth like this is how you do it i mean Mm -hmm. if you care about carbon emissions which probably most people who listen to this podcast don't but like it's not about carbon well, it's about carbon sequestration, right? Because that's like the currency of like life underground. But it's about just biodiversity. I mean, improving biodiversity, increasing life in a system. Like, do you care about the planet? Well, I, I would hope you do. But like, this is it, like right here. And, you know, what's cool is thinking about how much untapped potential there is, like public lands, like BLM land, for example. And, you know, there's a couple guys like, like R.C. Carter and intensely we're going to talk to soon is you know out on blm land like moving his cattle like frequently and he's seeing like great results after just like one year and you know that's how we build a more resilient system and you know people are always talking about how much land and is wasted and everything like that but you know obviously there's a lot of a lot of nuance uh in that so i'm curious in general on you know other regenerative principles and I know your time at, at Rome Ranch, you guys experiment with like multi-species grazing and things like that. Is that something that, you know, a lot of people are implementing or, you know, what else is like, you know, frontiers of regenerative holistic uh, management that's kind of cool or you think stuff like that works well? Uh, I feel like there's a lot of things that get thrown around and they're all like in the, you know, test Test facilities like yeah 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 of, that's of, a that's of, a great question i love that question um so from my time at rome ranch yeah some of the stuff that we were trying as far as we were rotating our bison according to our grazing plans and you know trying to regenerate the land through bison grazing also doing cover seeding cover crops on degraded land which some of the land was so degraded that you could barely even get a cover crop to grow, which is like, wow, that's crazy. Um, as far as running the multi-species, I think that a lot of the the monogastric, the poultry, the pigs, 
Um, you know, anything that's reliant on outside feed and feed that is inevitably produced in a, you know, an energy dense situation. And I say energy dense to produce it, driving the tractors, the fertilizer, the seed, the chemicals, and then the transportation. Um, I'm not, I'm not too big on that. I think that it's great. And a lot of people can pull it off or some people can pull it off. I think most people are going to have a really hard time with that, especially given the last few years with the price of diesel. I don't see that. I don't see that going down. I don't see the cost of purchasing those grains that are required to feed those animals uh, to become a better value proposition. That being said, you know, I think the poultry and that type of thing, you can manage them in a way that that really can give you a boost in nutrients on your land and uh, it can be done. Um, you know, White Oak Pasture is doing a pretty good job of it. Um, again, you know, where's that feed coming from? I think it's a uh, uh, real energy, you know, interesting energy. If they were to run the quantum life cycle analysis on the poultry, and I mean, Will Harris, he'll say openly that they lose money on their poultry anyways. And so how much of it is, is it worth, while it's like i don't that's why i've kind of went away from eating a lot of chicken really just go back to bison and elk um some cool stuff that i saw we had some mentors um chad and ronna lemke out of mason texas they were holistic management mentors of ours and on their ranch they were running multi-species but they were running their large mob of cattle large mob of sheep and a large herd of goats all in one herd and they would move them all together. And they were in a, this kind of brushy, grassy, savanna landscape where it was perfect for all of those species. And they were able to just get so much more out of the land. And the results of that is incredible. I mean, they've, they've created this, you know, dream-like savanna like you envision in Africa, really, on their ranch. So from that, from a multi-species standpoint, uh, I think there's a lot that can be done with goats, especially goats, you know, because they can eat just, they can eat anything, right? They eat, I mean, we're out in Wyoming in this kind of sagebrush country and well, an- antelopes are like speed goats basically, right? So yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but you know, the, the closest living relative of the antelope. I mean, is it a, a good mountain goat? No, like they're, they're, they're so because they're, because they're, they're not actually real antelopes, right? Like they're, prong, no, they're called pronghorns. They're not actually real antelopes. That's all I know. Yeah. They're, they're completely own uh, genus and, and they were totally separated. Uh, I don't, I don't want to venture a guess how many hundreds of thousands yeah. of years ago from everything else. Uh, but their closest living relative is a giraffe. <laughs> yeah isn't that crazy what yeah i could kind of see it actually in the neck yeah it's like very straight and long wow yeah that's so weird it's crazy they are very weird they are very weird they, they look weird such interesting creatures They're fast but it's good meat and yeah they they'll yeah. eat the the sagebrush but that makes a lot of sense the multi-species grazing because it's like i guess what is the definition of like regenerative mm. to me like we're like what you're talking about is like to me is like is it self sufficient? And clearly with yeah. monogastrics, the answer is no. It can almost well, never be. But are they adding any benefit to regenerating the land that the ruminants would not have 
covered or, you know, is there any additional benefit? Absolutely. So, I mean, uh, so in the sense that, for example, we had, I'm um, talking in Texas, we had some extremely degraded land, the worst land I've ever seen. And the, the birds alone, we're not going to solve that, but uh, we rolled out hay for a carbon source, which that hay was imported. So there was a whole bunch of embedded fossil fuel energy in that. And I, you know, like, I'm not like anti-fossil fuel, oh, but yeah. it's, it's a cost and it's an energy cost. It's an energy cost. And so, you know, we rolled out that carbon source cause the soil was completely devoid of carbon. And then we, then we ran the chickens on top of that and then seeded the cover cover crop into that patch. We seeded the whole field, the patches where we didn't have the hay and the nitrogen and all the phosphorus and all the micronutrients that the poultry was providing where we didn't do that. We didn't get any growth and where we did the cover crops were like six feet tall. So, I mean, yeah, you can, you can pour money into the system in terms of nutrients, in terms of carbon and all everything that we're missing. But I mean, it comes with a cost, right? And so is that scalable, sustainable, whatever. Um, I don't know. Uh, yeah. So I, I always think I always like to look at it that way. What what would this look like if diesel fuel went to twenty dollars a gallon? Because it very well could, you know. I guess my question is if you had a herd of bison or a herd of cattle and then ran a flock of chickens after, like, you know, the the nice theory of you run the chickens after or ducks, whatever turkeys and they eat the fly larva and it helps with, you know, parasitic load and it's, it's food for, you know, the birds. Mm -hmm. Would that be an more of an added benefit to the land? Like on top of what the bison or cattle are doing in terms of regeneration that it's enough to justify like, you know, running, a flock of birds that would still need some external feed or yeah. is it the quantity are, are are they just doing way too many birds and really we need like you know five birds well again i i, I totally but see i'm it. just you know yeah spitballing, spitballing. <laughs> like yeah like so there's the, this this is something that joel salatin's preached forever i know plenty of people who've done it tried it become frustrated with it uh and stop doing it because it just wasn't worth their time um that being said, it totally can be done if you're, you know, if those birds are a part of this marketing program where you're selling your birds for a premium and you're getting that out of them, plus the added benefit, because uh, ultimately, you know, the birds have to be producing or whether it's eggs or whatever, yeah, yeah. the birds have to be producing a saleable product for that, to, that equation to work out. Um, but based on what my experience, um, yeah, you know, it can be done. It can be done. I just think that, you know, it's another labor unit. Labor's short everywhere. So, like, is somebody's labor at 15 to, I don't know what minimum wage is around here, but you know what I mean? To try to get somebody to move birds or if that's what you're spending your time doing, that there's a trade-off. There's an opportunity cost. And what we find is people, you know, get enchanted by the idea of homesteading, doing all these things, try it for a while and realize that, okay, this, there's a reality to it and, and it's fun. It's cool. And some people stick with it. And I think that's awesome. Like I eat eggs every single day, uh, but I choose to go buy them from somebody who's committed to doing it properly versus me doing it myself. Um, 
you know, running the birds behind the livestock. That's an interesting one. I think that there is a benefit to definitely what you're talking about, them scratching through the patties and getting the larvae. Um, but at the same time, if we focus on uh, getting this healthy rumen function and empowering our dung beetles to do most of that work anyways and bury the bury it in the soil you know if the dung beetles are able to go to town and disperse that that patty as much as they can into the soil don't have as many fly larvae issues in general as well so you know there's there's different things that we can do and i'd say just like working more with with nature trying to trying to get this like ruminant system functioning and then yeah, if you're if you're into that and you want to go for that stacking enterprises, by all means. But I think the narrative that has been sold to a lot of people is you know is is kind of been a little bit misleading. Love Joel Salatin, all that stuff, but you know you can farm as like you know I've read his book and all that stuff. Um, it's not for everybody, that's for sure. Yeah, it's it's a lot of work. It seems like it's more work. Um, it's a lot of work. The ROI seems lower. Um, I I just always think about it. it's really interesting. I I personally also don't consume a lot of uh, chicken or pork at all. Also because the quality, like yeah. it is really hard to find quality pork and chicken. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's like what it comes down to. So if you if you are homesteading and yeah, you don't have you know the acreage and yeah, like definitely you can go for it. I think it's a, it's a good option, but you no, know, it seems to me that it would make sense from like a self-sustaining or like regenerative or just energy perspective. Say you have a farming operation outside of a town and this town has like a food processor and there's yep. just a ton of scraps. Yeah. Like, yeah, then that makes sense. Like yeah. go for it. Like the food scraps, the food waste or your neighbor is, is growing, you know, whatever crop, you turn the the hogs on to, you know, rut it all up, root it all up and and they get some feed there. So I'm all for that, but it, those are like unique circumstances, I think. But then, you know, that that's interesting. You bring that up too. I'm all for backyard hens. They're easy, you know, and like you say, kitchen scraps. And, you know, if you're, if you're somehow able to make that work without a lot of, uh, you know, just expensive, like, you know, cause you, you end up producing like, $20 $20 a dozen eggs like who wants to do that that doesn't make sense you yeah I mean? I mean inherently what it's like you know yeah like renewable energy right it uh it doesn't work at scale and uh, the only reason like you know chicken pork really works at scale is because of the living condition the industrial farming system like that's the <clears throat> the only reason I think you know ruminants you know they're so much more resilient they, they can work. consume diverse pastures. Like you're saying, you could do the multi-species grazing, just do different ruminants. And um, yeah, it's once you get it, the system down, it's to me, it seems like less, probably less effort. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, for sure. It absolutely is. And, you know, what? when we look at designing those systems, whether you're just starting out or you're an established producer with land, with a property, a ranch, farm, it always ends up circling back to water. It always ends up back at water. You know, and we start to say, okay, well, all right. So in order to achieve the goals I want to achieve, which is improving the health of my land and producing a healthy animal food, 
we want to start rotating them across the land. Oh, well, we don't have water everywhere. So then we need to figure out, okay, how do we install infrastructure and systems kind of like we were looking at today to be able to make, to pull that off and make that happen. And so I think that there's so much opportunity in the, in the world of water, I guess, you know, and, and from the regenerative side of things, because it's really the, the key to making it all work. If we don't have good water systems, the fencing part, that's easy. But the water, man, it is the, it's the ticket. I just find it so interesting, you know, looking at a property and saying, okay, where, what are my water sources and what do we have to work with? And how can we, how can we get that, that system designed in the ground functioning so it becomes easy and effortless so you know you you could manage it on the side or you can manage it uh yeah on weekends and that type of thing i think that's that's a excellent path towards decentralization is having more of those types of systems yeah water wow water is so big it's like and it's really a hot topic right now, especially, I mean, you live in Utah or like Arizona or some, I mean, really some of these places probably like shouldn't exist. Um, <laughs> yeah, Phoenix, like Phoenix, Las Vegas, well. like literally these cities make no sense and they pump so yeah. much water. And I mean, most of it's used for like golf courses, but a lot of it's used for agriculture mm-hmm. and a lot of it's for animal agriculture. And um, I often, you know, think about this and it's obviously one way to improve water utilization is to improve the quality of the soil, mm-hmm. right? Organic matter um, increases dramatically, increases water holding capacity. But, you know, is there a happy medium there? And yeah. It's, as uh, far as what? Just like, how do we how do we become better with water utilization? And, you know, is agriculture like a big problem? And yeah, to me, it seems like the answer is yes. And the solution is improving the health of the soil. Yeah. But that's again, it's an uphill battle, but it, it's one that, you know, Diana Rogers always talks about, you know, gray and blue water, like most of the water, she says something like 95 plus percent of the water is like naturally occurring in the environment for beef. Which, right. It's already falling yeah, on that land. I and- think that number is I don't know. Like it seems high because I do see a lot of irrigation happening like yeah. anywhere, like to be honest. And is that sustainable? Oh, I just don't know. Yeah. Well, in, in a not. lot of cases, you know, a lot of say the alfalfa production, um, alfalfa is one of the best forages on the planet. It's called the queen of the forages. Like it's an amazing feed, but we grow it in such vast quantities in monocultures under irrigation, then to bail it up, take the carbon away and collapse the soil structure and then ship the bales off to Asia. There's this massive market of of North American hay that goes to Asia. And so, so you know, is that ba- bailing it is bad, really bad for the soil health? Yeah, yeah. So so hay, so anytime that if you can imagine you've got this lush field of grass that has grown up and you take it and you cut it off and you roll it up in a big bundle, and then you take it away from your farm. That I like to think of a bale of hay as a big bundle of carbon, a big bundle of nutrients. It's full of you know every mineral that you can imagine, right? Uh, the big piece being carbon, which is what we need our we need more of in our soils. So you remove that, and especially if you do it every single year for a hundred years. You know, we test, we soil sample hay fields and often they're down to 
you know, a, a healthy soil would be anywhere from six to 10% organic matter. And often these hay fields that have been stripped and stripped and stripped and stripped every single year for a hundred years, they're so compacted, they can't get water into the soil and they're about one to 2% organic matter. So they've been mined out essentially. So that's what hay is. Um, hay is a tool, I think, you know, it's a tool to, you know, uh, support different land management, but it should, a whole operation should not be based on hay because it's uneconomical. And, you know, it worked well when, you know, it was 1950 and we just had like gusher oil wells, you know, where gas was so cheap. Diesel was like, you know, pennies, uh, per gallon and our soils were still healthy and they still had a lot of carbon back in the soil. Um, that also makes me think too, this is a really interesting thing. I don't know how many of your listeners are deep, deep into agriculture, but they'll find this interesting. I have a farmer who lives near me in Southern Alberta who all of these problems we were talking about related to soil health. He was, he was trying to figure this out 20 years ago. His, you know, his crop yields were going down. He was paying too much for nitrogen fertilizer, synthetic fertilizer, and so he had this crazy idea to experiment and take the exhaust from his tractor and pipe it basically back into the soil because the exhaust is old plant material from diesel fuel from millions of years ago. Anyways, long story short, 20 years into the future in 2023, this thing is called bioactive carbon farming. And this is, this is a, the real deal. So they take the emission, the exhaust from the tractor and run it through what they call this bio, uh, what do they call it? Fusion tank. And it cools the exhaust and it goes into this pool of water in the tank and it creates this soupy carbon brew. So it's carbon, minerals, everything. And then they have two side tanks on, on the fusion tank that have microbes that mix in there and create like this ultimate brew of soil amendment. And then there, that goes back out to the, the drill or whatever implement they're using to seed their crops. And it's pumping it back into the soil. So they're returning carbon back into the soil and they're seeing these incredible results. And so multiple things that that's doing. Most of these farms, these conventional farms, depending on the size, they're, they're spending millions on fertilizer and herbicide now. It's getting completely out of control. They're unable to make money. With this system, they're able to go cold turkey on fertilizer and way reduce their chemical rates down to fractions of, of what they were. And they're getting the same or better crops and their soil health is improving. And so I've just been fascinated by this. And this is like the ultimate in decentralization. All of these farmers are already buying the diesel fuel. And in agriculture... These, these pieces of equipment are not going to be electrified. I mean, they might play around with it, but we're going to be using diesel for a long time. So why not just use what we're already using, which is carbon, put it back in the soil, improve the health of our soil, and it's like this virtuous cycle. Is that something you just like attach to like your vehicle or, or something? Or You could. You know, it's really interesting. And I, like I say, their farm is near where I live. So I happen to just stumble yeah. upon these guys. And you go out to their farm and there is like a whole boneyard of early experiments that they have done, like rototillers and lawnmowers with like exhaust pipes pointed at the ground. And so in theory, you could just do that. You could collect the exhaust from the carbon and 
in fact, just foliar spray it on the plants. And they do that at their manufacturing facilities is somewhat remote. So they run it off a diesel generator and then collect all the exhaust off of that into what they call carbon water and mix microbes in it and then sell it as foliar spray to enhance crop health. So it's really interesting. That's cool. I mean, yeah, I was going to ask you what you're most excited about, but I think you just answered it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty excited about that. No, that's awesome. Like that's, I think the innovation like is, you know, if we can keep this like within the system, like maybe it needs to be in a different form. Like you're saying, adding microbes um, for more benefit, but yeah, it makes, makes total sense. It's uh, you know, we're, we're taking it from the earth in the form of fossil fuels. Like we could return some of it back potentially. Absolutely. Um, but I no, want to go back to the hay for a second. Cause that's really interesting. I'm definitely gonna have to tell my sister cause I think they're about to bail their, uh, mm. their first alfalfa crop since they just moved on to land. But, right. um, ideally I was like, why don't you just have someone, you know, come graze it or, you know, but probably make a lot more money on the hay. So, but that's really interesting. And then that makes me think is like how, especially in like Wyoming, Canada, it's really cold in the the winter right like that's when a lot of this is getting fed to mm-hmm. to livestock is that you know unsustainable is that another reason why bison are superior because they can you know be more resilient in the winter and punch through the soil is that another reason going back to what you're saying and i'm 100 on board with this the cyclicality and seasonality like needs to be respected You're 100% right. That's a great point. And that is another reason why bison are, uh, well, they have their advantages because they, they can do that. They can, they can forage through deep snow on low quality forage. Um, and you know, generally like depending on what species of plants you have in, on the rangeland or the pasture, uh, they, they can winter graze and get through, um, in a lot of say cattle systems, and in bison, what we see producers shifting uh, more towards, if they're serious about actually making money, is they're trying to graze as long into the winter as possible, and then just supplementing with a little bit, say, uh, uh, just 5% of the animal's daily requirement, say, with a little bit of alfalfa, to really just kind of keep those rumen microbes humming and keep them supercharged, so then they're able to digest the lower quality forage that's out on the out on the land so absolutely so then we then we can move from a system where it's substitutional feeding so we're substituting the hay in for the grass that they could graze to a more of a supplementation so that's where that's where the producers that are serious about running this as a business are going yeah i mean it makes sense hay is so expensive like i mean who can afford I mean, this past winter is pretty much five, six months anywhere, you know, in the Rocky Mountains. Yeah. <laughs> Who can afford to to feed their animals like majority of, you know, hay. And it's... Uh, well, that brings up another interesting point too. Uh, mo- a lot of landscapes are not set up to be a year-round cow-calf herd. You know, if you're up to your armpits in snow for six to eight months a year, like in where I live, we do get quite a bit of snow like that. Is it is it suitable to have that cow herd on that piece of land all year long, or can we develop systems where we are more migratory with our animals? Whether we, you know, whether we're bringing in somebody else's animals, or we have an arrangement where we have a winter range and, and 
somewhere where it's more suitable, that type of thing. That's something we see over and over is just uh, the, the choice of the enterprise doesn't match the environment. Yeah, I think between water and nutrients and breed species, like, yeah, it's, it's, there's so many mismatches going on and it's, yeah, it's, it's being forced and, and eventually, mm-hmm. you know, something's going to crack and, you know, you're just not going to be able to continue it. And, but then it's like, you know, there's an inherent blame placed on something, right? Whether yeah. it's fertilizer costs, hay costs yeah. and things like that. People and, are always looking to be the victim and looking for a scapegoat instead of, recognizing oh okay well you know the way we've been doing things is actually was maybe just a giant experiment all along and was never set up to succeed so we better adapt or we just go tits up i think people just need to take a good long hard look at like the environment that they're in and think of you know what would thrive here what would you know survive here Mm -hmm. and what what is the difference between that and you know suit your product to the land not the land to the product or maybe i'm saying it backwards but like you know people Mm -hmm. have an idea of what they want um before they even you know start something and it's really (laughs) like you know you can't just do black angus in in alberta probably all year round without a ton of hay i'd imagine i don't know that's just an example but that's why you know kind of wrapping up here the bison just makes sense right like this is their land they're built for North America. I think the part, you know, of the heat is really astounding and it makes sense too. Cause I mean, right here in Wyoming too, it's 90 degrees, you know, mm-hmm. um, they need to have that very large cause the great plains, their temperature fluctuations are, are crazy, right? Like there's no, you know, regulation usually from like, you know, coastal areas, large bodies of water. So bison are used to that mm-hmm. and it's it's just astounding to see that that type of resilience. So, yeah, Cody, it's great great chat. Appreciate you coming through. Excited to see everything, you know, kind of propel forward. But people want to find out more about you or what you do. I don't know what uh, where can they find you. Well, if somebody wants to reach out to me just directly, if they're you know I guess serious about bison regenerative agriculture. Just shoot me an email, Cody at sweetgrassbison.ca. Um, and yeah, just uh, keep an eye out uh, for the Wild Bison podcast. It's going to be launched this fall. Oh yeah, yeah, my friend Ty Stubblefield and I. And so we're gonna we're gonna dig deep into conversations like this, bison specific, uh, getting just getting back to the land and how do we get back to the land and live a meaning of life and prosperity? And, you know, there'll be a lot of conversations about hunting, about, you know, about the business side of, of what we're doing and just really trying to dig into it and share, share this journey with people. Yeah, that's badass. Wow. Really looking forward to that. I think, yeah, these things are all very decentralized, right? That's why we love it here. I mean, the hunting aspect, trying to get more, you know, Folks talking about hunting on this podcast think it's nothing more empowering and decentralizing going to acquire your own food. Yeah. You know, and doing it the real way, I, I would also say, I think hunting, there's all, there's a spectrum to everything, right? Yeah. You know, hunting, you know, raising livestock, whatever. You could sit in a stand all day and have corn in your field just for the white tails to come through, or 
you could hike 40 plus miles over like five days. Yeah. Well, and I don't mean to drag it on, but that's a great, interesting conversation about like from the bison side of things, like going, you could go out onto a bison ranch and, and hunt a bison. It's not a hunt. It's not a free of, you know, uh, free, not free range, but free, uh, fair chase. But that is better than hauling a bison to an industrial slaughter plant. So like, you know, it's, it's such a continuum. Yeah. It's like a, the field harvest. I think that's yeah. super cool. And I, I like, you know, Rome ranch and a lot of other bison ranches do these kind of, you know, ceremonies around the harvest. I think it's good. Get people educated on what goes into, you know, harvesting an animal, the life you pay respect to it. And yeah, I mean, that's fresh meat right there. You don't have to go to, knock on the old USDA processor with all those rules if you get it. Yeah, you, right so you mentioned spot. them, but I, I want to, if people are serious in the, U, in the U.S. about buying high-quality bison meat, uh, I go to Wild Bison Ranch in Montana. My friend Ty Stubblefield, we helped him get his ranch going, and he's doing a lot of cool regenerative stuff there. Uh, North Bridger Bison, Matt Skogland in Montana as well. And kind of the godfather of a lot of this field harvest stuff, uh, Dan O'Brien, Wild Idea Buffalo Company in South Dakota. They ship nationwide. They're amazing. So go check those those guys out. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Cody. It's a great chat. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Decentralized Radio. See you next time.